and to this last by john ruskin chapter two this is an abridged version of john ruskin's and to this last by ray defterius while narrating this i have tried to stay as true to the original as possible and the abridgment or changes have been made where i felt they would make the text more accessible or where i felt duplication in argument takes away from comprehension typically this has more to do with classical allusions and complexity of language which may be difficult for modern readers it certainly was for me an example in this chapter is a phrase used by raskin where he describes a wrecker's handful of coin gleaned from the beach to which he has beguiled an argosy in this case i have chosen to use the word ship that has been altered to a wrecker's handful of coin gleaned from the beach to which he beguiled a ship Serious scholars may note that an argosy could be used for ship or fleet, and I have chosen to use ship, which I believe does not change the meaning of the sentence. Likewise, in another place I have replaced exultation with happiness, as I feel that this improves comprehension, and so forth. Any errors or omissions are purely my fault, and I apologise in advance for any mistakes or mispronunciations. I'll also apologize for bird noises in the background, sounds of kids playing or other minor artifacts that may intrude from time to time. I've done this purely as a non-commercial endeavor and am limited by my equipment and home environment. As a hobbyist woodworker struggling with the meaning of craft, I hope that in spite of these shortcomings, you will find value in listening to a very important text that I feel should be far more widely circulated when considering the current situations and challenges in the 21st century. Essay 2. The Veins of Wealth The answer which would be made by any ordinary political economist to the statements contained in the preceding paper is in few words as follows. Our science is simply the science of getting rich. Persons who follow its precepts do actually become rich, and persons who disobey them become poor. Every capitalist of Europe has acquired his fortune by following the known laws of our science and increases his capital daily by an adherence to them. It is vain to bring forward tricks of logic against the force of accomplished facts. Every man of business knows by experience how money is made and how it is lost. Pardon me. Men of business do indeed know how they made their money, or how, on occasion, they lost it. Playing a long-practiced game, they are familiar with the chances of its cards, and can rightly explain their losses and gains. But they neither know who keeps the bank of the gambling house, nor what other games may be played with the same cards, nor what other losses and gains, far away among the dark streets, are essentially, though invisibly, dependent on theirs in the lighted rooms. They have learned a few, and only a few of the laws of mercantile economy, but not one of those of political economy. I observe that men of business really know the meaning of the word rich. At least, if they know, they do not in their reasonings allow for the fact that it is a relative word, implying its opposite poor as positively as the word north implies its opposite south. Men nearly always speak and write as if riches were absolute, and it were possible, by following certain scientific precepts, for everyone to be rich. 
whereas riches are a power like that of electricity, acting only through inequalities. The force of the guinea you have in your pocket depends wholly on the default of a guinea in your neighbor's pocket. If he did not want it, it would be of no use to you. The degree of power it possesses depends accurately upon the need or desire he has for it, and the art of making yourself rich, in the ordinary mercantile economist sense, is therefore equally and necessarily the art of keeping your neighbor poor. I would not contend in this matter for the acceptance of terms, but I wish the reader clearly to understand the difference between the two economies to which the terms political and mercantile might be attached. Political economy, the economy of a state or of citizens, consists simply in the production, preservation and distribution, at fittest time and place, of useful or pleasurable things. The farmer who cuts his hay at the right time, the shipwright who drives his bolts well home in sound wood, the builder who lays good bricks in well-tempered mortar, the housewife who takes care of furniture in the parlour and guards against all waste in her kitchen, and the singer who rightly disciplines and never overstrains her voice, are all political economists in the true and final sense, adding continually to the riches and well-being of the nation to which they belong. But mercantile economy, the economy of pay, signifies the accumulation in the hands of individuals of legal or moral claim upon or power over the labor of others. Every such claim implying precisely as much poverty or debt on one side as it implies riches or right on the other. It does not therefore necessarily involve an addition to the actual property or well-being of the state in which it exists. But since this commercial wealth or power over labor is nearly always convertible at once into real property, while real property is not always convertible at once into power over labor, the idea of riches amongst active men in civilized nations generally refers to commercial wealth, and in estimating their possessions, they rather calculate the value of their horses and fields by the number of guineas they could get for them, than the value of their guineas by the number of horses and fields they could buy with them. There is, however, Another reason for this habit of mind, namely that an accumulation of real property is of little use to its owner, unless, together with it, he has commercial power over labor. Thus, suppose any person to be put in possession of a large estate of fruitful land, with rich beds of gold in its gravel, countless herds of cattle in its pastures, houses and gardens and storehouses, full of useful stores. But suppose, after all, that he could get no servants. In order that he may be able to have servants, someone in his neighborhood must be poor and in want of gold, or his corn. Assume that no one is in want of either, and that no servants are to be had. He must, therefore, bake his own bread, make his own clothes, plough his own ground, and shepherd his own flocks. His gold will be as useful to him as any other yellow pebbles on his estate. His stores must rot, for he cannot consume them. He can eat no more than any other man could eat, and wear no more than any other man could wear. He must lead a life of severe and common labor to procure even ordinary comforts. He will be ultimately unable to keep either houses in repair or fields in cultivation, 
and forced to content himself with a poor man's portion of cottage and garden in the midst of a desert of wasteland, trampled by wild cattle and encumbered by ruins of palaces, which he'll hardly mock at himself by calling his own. The most covetous of mankind would with small happiness accept riches of this kind on these terms. What is really desired under the name of riches is essentially power over men. In its simplest sense, the power of obtaining for your own advantage the labor of servant, tradesman and artist. In wider sense, authority of directing large masses of the nation to various ends, good, trivial or hurtful, according to the mind of the rich person. And this power of wealth, of course, is greater or less in direct proportion to the poverty of the men over whom it is exercised, and in inverse proportion to the number of persons who are as rich as ourselves, and who are ready to give the same price for an article of which the supply is limited. If the musician is poor, he will sing for small pay, as long as there is only one person who can pay him. But if there be two or three, he will sing for the one who offers him most. And thus the power of the riches of the patron depends first on the poverty of the artist, always imperfect and doubtful as we shall see presently, even when most authoritative, and then on the limitation of the number of equally wealthy persons who also want seats at the concert. As above stated, the art of becoming rich, in the common sense, is not absolutely nor finally the art of accumulating much money for ourselves, but also of contriving that our neighbours shall have less. In accurate terms, it is the art of establishing the maximum inequality in our own favour. Now the establishment of such inequality cannot be shown in the abstract to be either good or bad for the body of the nation. The absurd assumption that such inequalities are necessarily good lies at the root of most of the popular fallacies on the subject of political economy. For the inevitable law in this matter is that the benefit of the inequality depends, first, on the method by which it was accomplished, and secondly, on the purpose to which it is applied. Inequalities of wealth, unjustly established, have assuredly injured the nation in which they exist during their establishment, and unjustly directed, injure it yet more during their existence. But inequalities of wealth justly established benefit the nation in the course of their establishment, and nobly used, aid it yet more by their existence. That is to say, among every active and well-governed people, the various strengths of individuals, tested by full exertion and specially applied to various need, issues in unequal but harmonious results, receiving reward or authority according to its class and service, while in the inactive or ill-governed nation, the gradations of decay and the victories of treason work out also their own rugged system of subjection and success, and substitute for the melodious inequalities of concurrent power the iniquitous dominances and depressions of guilt and misfortune. Thus the circulation of wealth in a nation resembles that of the blood in the natural body. There is one quickness of the current which comes of cheerful emotion or wholesome exercise, and another which comes of shame or of fever. There is a flush of the body which is full of warmth and life, and another which will pass into putrefaction. The analogy will hold down even to minute particulars. 
whereas diseased local determination of the blood involves depression of the general health of the system, all morbid local actions of riches will be found ultimately to involve a weakening of the resources of the body politic. The mode in which this is produced may be at once understood by examining one or two instances of the development of wealth in the simplest possible circumstances. Suppose two sailors, cast away on an uninhabited coast, are obliged to maintain themselves there by their own labour for a series of years. If they both keep their health and work steadily with each other, they might build themselves a convenient house and in time come to possess a certain quantity of cultivated land, together with various stores laid up for future use. All these things would be real property or riches, and supposing the men have both worked equally hard, they would each have equal right to share or use of it. Their political economy would consist merely in careful preservation and just division of these possessions. Perhaps, however, after some time, one or other might be dissatisfied with the results of their common farming, and they might in consequence agree to divide the land they had bought under the spade into equal shares so that each might thereafter work in his own field and live by it. Suppose then, that after this arrangement had been made, one of them were to fall ill and be unable to work on his land at a critical time, say sowing or harvest. He would naturally ask the other to sow or reap for him. Then his companion might say with perfect justice, I will do this additional work for you, but if I do it, you must promise to do as much for me at another time. I will count how many hours I spend on your ground, and you shall give me a written promise to work for the same number of hours on mine, whenever I need your help, and you are able to give it. Suppose the disabled man's sickness to continue, and that under various circumstances for several years, requiring the help of the other, he on each occasion gave a written pledge to work, as soon as he was able, at his companion's orders, for the same number of hours which the other had given up to him. What will the position of the two men be when the invalid is able to resume work? Considered as a state, they will be poorer than they would have been otherwise. Poorer by the withdrawal of what the sick man's labour would have produced in the interval. His friend may perhaps have toiled with an energy quickened by the enlarged need, but in the end his own land and property must have suffered by the withdrawal of so much of his time and thought from them. And the united property of the two men will certainly be less than it would have been if both had remained in health and activity. But the relations in which they stand to each other are also widely altered. The sick man has not only pledged his labour for some years, but will probably have exhausted his own share of the accumulated stores, and will be in consequence for some time dependent on the other for food, which he can only pay or reward him for by yet more deeply pledging his own labour. Supposing the written promises to be held equally valid, among civilised nations their validity is secured by legal measures, the person who had worked for both might now, if he choose, rest altogether, and passed his time in idleness, not only forcing his companion to redeem all the engagements he has already entered into, but exacting from him pledges for further labour, to an arbitrary amount, for what food he had to advance to him. There might not, from first to last, be the least illegality, in the ordinary sense of the word, in the arrangement. But if a stranger arrived on the coast at this advanced epoch of their political economy, he would find one man commercially rich, the other commercially poor. He would see perhaps with no small surprise 
one passing his days in idleness, the other labouring for both, and living sparely, in the hope of recovering his independence at some distant period. This is of course an example of only one out of many ways in which inequality of possession may be established between different persons, giving rise to the mercantile forms of riches and poverty. In the instance before us, one of the men might from the first have deliberately chosen to be idle, and to put his life in pawn at present ease. Or he might have mismanaged his land and been compelled to have recourse to his neighbour for food and help, pledging his future labour for it. But what I want the reader to note especially, is the fact common to a large number of typical cases of this kind, that the establishment of the mercantile wealth, which consists in a claim upon labour, signifies a political diminution of the real wealth, which consists in substantial possessions. Take another example, more consistent with the ordinary course of affairs of trade. Suppose that three men, instead of two, formed the little isolated republic, and found themselves obliged to separate in order to farm different pieces of land at some distance from each other, along the coast. Each estate furnishing a distinct kind of produce, and each more or less in need of the material raised by the other. Suppose that the third man, in order to save the time of all three, undertakes simply to superintend the transference of commodities from one farm to the other, on condition of receiving some sufficiently remunerative share of each parcel of goods conveyed, or of some parcel received in exchange for it. If this carrier or messenger always brings to each estate from the other what is chiefly wanted at the right time, the operations of the two farmers will go on prosperously, and the largest possible result in produce, or wealth, will be attained by the little community. But suppose no intercourse between the landowners is possible, except through the travelling agent, and that after a time this agent, watching the course of each man's agriculture, keeps back the articles with which he has been entrusted until there comes a period of extreme necessity for them, on one side or other, and then exacts in exchange for them all the distressed farmer can spare of other kinds of produce. It is easy to see that by ingeniously watching his opportunities, he might possess himself regularly of the greater part of the superfluous produce of the two estates. And at last, in some years of severest trial or scarcity, purchase both for himself, and maintain the former proprietors thenceforward as his labourers or servants. This would be a case of commercial wealth acquired on the principles of modern political economy. But more distinctly even than in the former instance, it is manifest in this that the wealth of the state, or of the three men considered as a society, is collectively less than it would have been had the merchant been content with just a profit. The operations of the two agriculturists have been cramped to the utmost, and the continual limitation of the supply of things they want at critical times, together with the failure of courage consequent on the prolongation of a struggle for mere existence, without any sense of permanent gain, must have seriously diminished the effective results of their labour, and the stores finally accumulated in the merchant's hands will not in any wise be of equal value to those which, had the dealings been honest, would have filled at once the granaries of the farmers and his own. The whole question, therefore, respecting not only the advantage, but even the quantity of national wealth, resolves itself finally into one of abstract justice. It is impossible to conclude, of any given mass of acquired wealth, merely by the fact of its existence, whether it signifies good or evil to the nation, 
in the midst of which it exists. Its real value depends on the moral sign attached to it, just as sternly as that of a mathematical quantity depends on the algebraical sign attached to it. Any given accumulation of commercial wealth may be indicative, on the one hand, of faithful industries, progressive energies, and productive ingenuities, or, on the other, it may be indicative of mortal luxury, merciless tyranny, ruinous chicane. Some treasures are heavy with human tears, as an ill-stored harvest with untimely rain, and some gold is brighter in sunshine than it is in substance. And these are not observed merely moral attributes of riches, which the seeker of riches may, if he chooses, despise. They are literally material attributes of riches, depreciating or exalting incalculably the monetary significance of the sum in question. One mass of money is the outcome of action which has created, another of action which has annihilated, ten times as much in the gathering of it. Such and such strong hands have been paralyzed, as if they had been numbed by nightshade. So many strong men's courage broken, so many productive operations hindered. This and the other false direction given to labor and lying image of prosperity set up. That which seems to be wealth may in verity be only the gilded index of a far-reaching ruin. A wrecker's handful of coin gleaned from the beach to which he has beguiled a ship. A camp follower's bundle of rags unwrapped from the breasts of goodly soldiers dead, and purchase pieces of potter fields, wherein shall be buried together the citizen and the stranger. And therefore the idea that directions can be given for the gaining of wealth, irrespectively of the consideration of its moral sources, or that any general and technical laws of purchase and gain can be set down for national practice, is perhaps the most insolently futile of all that ever beguiled men through their vices. So far as I know, there is not in history record of anything so disgraceful to the human intellect as represented by the modern idea of this commercial text. Buy in the cheapest market and sell in the dearest, as a principle of national economy. Buy in the cheapest market? Yes. But what made your market cheap? Charcoal may be cheap among your roof timbers after a fire and bricks may be cheap in your streets after an earthquake, but fire and earthquake may not therefore be national benefits. Sell in the dearest? Yes, truly. But what made your market dear? You sold your bread well today. Was it to a dying man who gave his last coin for it and will never need bread more? Or to a rich man who tomorrow will buy your farm over your head? Or to a soldier on his way to pillage the bank in which you have put your fortune. None of these things you can know, one thing only you can know, namely, whether this dealing of yours is a just and faithful one, which is all you need concern yourself about respecting. Sure thus to have done your part in bringing about ultimately in the world a state of things that will not issue in pillage or in death. And thus every question concerning these things merges itself ultimately in the great question of justice, which the ground being thus far cleared for it, I will enter upon in the next paper, leaving only in this three final points for the reader's consideration. It has been shown that the chief value and virtue of money consists in it having power over human beings, 
and that without this power large material possessions are useless, and to any person possessing such power, comparatively unnecessary. But power over human beings is attainable by other means than by money. As I said a few pages back, the money power is always imperfect and doubtful. There are many things which cannot be reached with it, others which cannot be retained by it. Many joys may be given to men which cannot be bought for gold, and many fidelities found in them which cannot be rewarded with it. Trite enough, the reader thinks. Yes, but it is not so trite. I wish it were, that in this moral power, quite inscrutable and immeasurable though it may be, there is a monetary value just as real as that represented by more ponderous currencies. A man's hand may be full of invisible gold, and the wave of it or the grasp shall do more than another's with a shower of bullion. This invisible gold also does not necessarily diminish in spending. Political economists will do well some day to take heed of it, though they cannot take measure. But further, since the essence of wealth consists in its authority over men, if the apparent or nominal wealth fail in this power, it fails in essence, in fact, ceases to be wealth at all. It does not appear lately in England that our authority over men is absolute. The servants show some disposition to rush riotously upstairs, under an impression that their wages are not regularly paid. We should augur ill of any gentleman's property to whom this happened every other day in his drawing-room. So also the power of our wealth seems limited as respects the comfort of the servants, no less than their quietitude. The persons in the kitchen appear to be ill-dressed, squalid, half-starved. One cannot help imagining that the riches of the establishment must be of a very theoretical and documentary character. Finally, since the essence of wealth consists in power over men, will it not follow that the nobler and the more in number the persons are over whom it has power, the greater the wealth? Perhaps it may even appear after some consideration that the persons themselves are the wealth, that these pieces of gold with which we are in the habit of gilding them are in fact nothing more than a kind of Byzantine harness or trappings, very glittering and beautiful in barbaric sight, wherewith we bridle the creatures, but if these self-same creatures could be guarded without the fretting and jingling of the Byzants in their mouths and ears, they might themselves be more valuable than their bridles. In fact, it may be discovered that the true veins of wealth are purple, and not in rock, but in flesh. Perhaps even the final outcome and consummation of all wealth is in producing as many as possible full-breathed, bright-eyed, and happy-hearted human creatures. Our modern wealth, I think, has a tendency the other way. Most political economists appearing to consider multitudes of human creatures not conducive to wealth, or at best conducive to it only by remaining in a dim-eyed and narrow-chested state of being. Nevertheless, it is open to serious question, which I leave to the reader's pondering whether among national manufacturers, that of souls of good quality may not at last turn out a quite leadingly lucrative one. Nay, in some far away and yet undreamt of hour, I can even imagine that England may cast all thoughts of possessive wealth back to the barbaric nations amongst which they first arose. And that, while the sands of the Indus and adamant of Golconda 
may yet stiffen the housings of the charger and flash from the turban of the slave. She, as a Christian mother, may at last attain to the virtues and the treasures of a heathen one, and be able to lead forth her sons, saying, These are my jewels. Mm-hmm.